It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hello, America. I'm broadcasting to you from the nation's capital, which has been partially immobilized, not just by political gridlock, but by a snowstorm that dumped a grand total of about three inches on Washington, D.C., maybe four, depending on which part of the region you're in. Uh, A lot of schools have closed. Others have gone virtual. You can do that now. The kids no longer get an automatic snow day when there's snow. Not that three or four inches would close down, you know, Buffalo or Chicago or even New York. I understand New York and Philadelphia are supposed to get really socked today. uh, Estimates of as much as two feet. So I'm glad I live here on the side of the rain snow line. It's now sleeting, which is kind of ugly and it's going to get icy. But there you have the weather report portion of the program. Hope you had a good weekend. Also, hope you got a chance to see Media Buzz. We've got several good segments online. Check my Facebook or uh, Twitter page uh, for that as we talk about COVID, as we talk about the Trump impeachment trials, talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, interesting conversation about uh, freedom of the press and ideological journalists who are now opposed to free speech uh, with Jonah Goldberg. Anyway, I want to start off with this because if I saw a a news item on this involving virtually anyone else in the world, I would basically scoff. I'm very good at scoffing. I would do the scoffing thing and I would say, this is complete BS and I'm not even going to waste my time clicking on this. So uh, I'll do it this way. Blank says that one of his startups has a monkey with wires going into its brain that's able to play video games. First of all, that just sounds weird. Second of all, Why do we want a monkey to play video games, okay? But it's Elon Musk. And if it's Elon Musk, you have to take it seriously. I mean, not only is he now the world's richest man, I don't understand why Tesla, which didn't make a huge profit, but is worth more than any other car company, is so profitable. Of course, he also founded SpaceX, which has had a lot of progress with the private launches. And I think I also read something else where he wants to beat NASA and put a, a man on Mars, a man or a woman, I should say, um, in about five years. Okay. And he's also got that tunnel boring company where he wants to create these hyperlink or hyperspeed loops underneath all the traffic. Good luck with that. I'd certainly like a faster way to get around. And that is when I'm able to travel again. But now he's got this other company called Neuralink, I had never heard of. And he's got this monkey playing video games. So he did a chat on some social media site that I'm not familiar with. It's called Clubhouse, forgive me. And he says that this uh, startup is working on various futuristic uh, projects. He's going to make videos available in about a month. Quote, uh, Musk says, we have a monkey with a wireless implant in their skull with tiny wires who can play video games with his mind. You can't see where the implant is, and he's a happy monkey. Glad to hear that. We have the nicest monkey facilities in the world. We want them to play mind pong with each other. Now, it's not just that he loves monkeys, which apparently he does, but the goal is to develop brain-linking technology that could address brain and spinal injuries in human beings, making up for people's lost capacity with an implanted trip. Now, that would be a game changer for many, many, many people. That would be wonderful. And because it's Elon Musk, I'm not going to bet against it. All right, a lot of territory to cover here, so let's start with story number one. (laughs) 
um, the fate, the future, the civil war within the Republican Party. Now, in recent days, I've talked a lot. We did it on the show. Uh, it's on uh, CNN or MSNBC virtually every hour or two. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the newly elected Republican congresswoman from Georgia, who is a past supporter of QAnon, and all this stuff has come out about some of the crazy conspiracy theories that she has endorsed. Although she disputes some of it because some of these are old Facebook posts, but she says, well, not denouncing it or disavowing it. Well, you know, I had a lot of people working with me on my Facebook page, so uh, some of that may be written by other stuff, and I don't necessarily agree with it. Okay. But the New York Times takes a look, and a lot of people are writing pieces like this, about what's happening to the Republican Party right now where there doesn't seem to be any um, particular punishment for Marjorie Taylor Greene. In fact, this is a woman who has raised the question of whether or not school shootings, such as the tragic Parkland High School uh, shooting in Georgia, are, are staged, are false flag operations, and yet the GOP put her on the House Education Committee, and that's causing a lot of uh, people to just have their hair on fire. So uh, the Times sets the scene by saying it's now a leaderless party because you have veterans, and it quotes a lot of, it's a lot of reporting here, it quotes a lot of Republicans, what you might call more mainstream Republicans in various states, saying, I don't even feel it, uh, comfortable anymore in the GOP. You have people like Senator Rob Portman of Ohio retiring, feeling like he can't get anything done on Capitol Hill. I mean, that's been true for a couple of decades now. And then you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, Building a brand on a web of dangerous conspiracy theories, says this news story in the Times, not an opinion piece, and pro-Trump Republicans at war with other conservatives who want to look beyond the former president to the future. Uh, this is a pretty toughly worded story that a lot of the people in the Republican Party will not agree with. A radical right movement that became emboldened under Trump has been maneuvering for more power. Well, that's true and ascending in different states and congressional districts. So, for example, Arizona, the state Republican Party, which I guess is a pretty far-to-the-right Republican Party, has actually censured three prominent members of the GOP. The governor, Doug Ducey, because he would not go along with the notion that Joe Biden didn't legally win his state. Former Senator Jeff Flake, who's been highly critical of the president. And Cindy McCain, of course, the widow of former Senator John McCain, who, is, who backed Joe Biden, and okay, I mean, I could see a Republican Party. I mean, you don't have to censure. You just say, like, we don't consider her part of the party anymore. You can criticize her. What is this censure thing? In Wyoming, where Liz Cheney, one of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach President Trump this latest round, the second time, so you had another uh, GOP congressman, Matt Gates, big Trump ally, go out to Wyoming and hold a news conference and an event with a phone hookup to Donald Trump Jr., denouncing Liz Cheney. And there's an effort underway to strip her of her number three leadership post in the House, which the top two leaders, led by Kevin McCarthy, do not support, but an awful lot of people in the House GOP caucus do support. Uh, the piece goes on to say that there are still Republican officials who are responsible for the party's political interests, but these people are under their own kinds of pressure, preaching unity to factions that have no desire to unite. And by the way, one of these false flag resolutions was passed by the Oregon Republican Party. So there's an interesting interview here in here with Ronna McDaniel, who is actually Ronna Romney McDaniel, but stopped using her middle maiden name because Donald Trump didn't like it because Donald Trump hates Mitt Romney. Okay, 
So she is trying to steer a middle course, even though she was a very, very big supporter of Donald Trump. Now he's no longer the president. She says the RNC will remain neutral uh, in you know primary contests, which is what any party apparatus has to do. She says she's critical of the public nature of some of this criticism. Here's what she says. If you have a family dispute, don't go on Jerry Springer. Do it behind closed doors. It's my role to call them and explain if we don't keep our party united and focused on 2022, we will lose. If we are attacking fellow Republicans and canceled culture within our own party, it's not helpful to winning majorities. Then she says, look, I'm not going to get involved in these primaries, but she adds, uh, it depends on if there's more egregious things, if there's a David Duke situation. Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to distance herself from those things, and there's going to be an investigation. I trust the voters. I have a lot of faith in the voters to pick who's best to represent them. By the way, for those who are supporters of Congresswoman Greene, um, despite the fact that she has uh, questioned whether a plane actually hit the Pentagon on 9-11, that she's called Barack Obama a secret Muslim, uh, that she has talked about the Clinton murders. There's a lot of stuff that has come out. But we have a democracy. And not only did she easily win her Republican primary in that Georgia district, but the, the, she ran unopposed. Like No Democrat mounted a campaign against her. So the people of that district of Georgia, you know, they picked her and they deserve to be represented by her. Uh, I don't think an effort to expel her is going to get anywhere. But, you know, there, are, there is precedent for stripping outlier members of committee assignments. That's what happened to Steve King, who's now no longer a congressman, but who, during his tenure as a um, Republican congressman from Iowa, uh, said a lot of things that either were racist or certainly were perceived to be racist. So back to the GOP, um, uh, this says that for Republicans who are critical of Trump, they see a party that doesn't have the leadership to stand up to its most extreme and divisive Faction. So here's Bill Kristol, um, veteran Republican, worked in the first Bush White House. He worked for Dan Quayle, conservative writer, former um, publisher of the Weekly Standard, the now deceased Weekly Standard. He's quoted in the piece as saying, Kevin McCarthy has been more critical of Liz Cheney than he has been of Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's pretty astonishing. That's the bottom line. It's one thing to have party unity, but at some point there have to be boundaries. And Ronald McDaniel says, you know, I mean, the thing that got the most attention was expressing support, at least on her Facebook page, Marjorie Green, for putting a bullet in the head of Nancy Pelosi. McDaniel, at least, called those comments atrocious. They need to be condemned, she said. They are inaccurate. They are very, very dangerous. But she stopped short of condemning Marjorie Taylor Green outright. She gave her the benefit of the doubt. She has said they're not from her. It does need to be investigation. I trust Kevin McCarthy will handle that within his own caucus. So even Republicans who are being very critical of Marjorie Taylor Greene will only walk up to a line. Some of them at least will denounce the comments, you know, let's shoot Nancy Pelosi. How is there any room? I, I mean, I have to ask you, and if Democrats were saying this about some Republican, I would be saying the exact same thing. How is there any room in our public discourse, in our public square for those kinds of comments? If you can't bring yourself to take on Marjorie Taylor Greene, at least attack the comments, which Ronald McDaniel has done, which a lot of other Republicans have remained silent on. All right, story number two. I, I'm a sucker for arresting newspaper headlines. I've written a lot of newspaper headlines in my career that when you're writing for an actual newspaper and you have to fit it into a certain space, particularly a one-column head, 
We have room for like a few words. It's pretty tough stuff. Written a zillion com- I, I write the headlines on my Fox News columns. I used to write them on other columns for the web. In the web, at least you have a little bit more flexibility in terms of the, uh, the amount of space you have. But you can't have a, a headline goes on forever. Anyway, there is today in the Washington Post the following headline about former President Trump hiring two new lawyers to represent him in next week's Senate impeachment trial. And here's the headline. One of Trump's new lawyers declined to charge Bill Cosby. The other maintains Jeffrey Epstein was murdered. Bam. <laughs> Nothing, you know, not, there's no like shock, outrage, whatever. Just states two facts. Didn't charge Cosby. Says Epstein was murdered. So over the weekend, this all happened, I think, since my Friday podcast, um, the five lawyers, led by two lawyers who were sort of hotshots in South Carolina, who were representing, who were to represent Donald Trump um, in his impeachment trial, um, all quit or were pushed out. I mean, there was, the verbiage was, well, it was a mutual agreement, but let's face it, the client decides who represents him. And I'll get to the reason that they were pushed out in a moment. So suddenly, Trump was lawyerless. So this morning comes the announcement about the two new lawyers. And I'll read from the Washington Post story. One is Bruce Castor. He ran for district uh, attorney, uh, this is five years ago, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. The campaign hinged on his decision, he was already the DA, not to charge comedian Bill Cosby with sexual assault. Um, And then after, this is wild, after Castor lost that DA race to a guy who said he would go after Cosby and did and got the conviction, and Cosby's now in prison, Castor, the losing DA candidate, sued the woman... He blamed for his defeat one of Cosby's victims. This was um, Andrea Constant, who who tried to go after him in the civil suit, and then it became a criminal suit once the DA's office changed. Anyway, his suit was dismissed in 2018, made national headlines. Now he's poised to represent another politician dismayed over a recent election loss, Trump. The other uh, lawyer is David Schoen. Uh, he has ties to several high-profile controversial defendants, including Roger Stone, of course, old-time Trump buddy, who was convicted in the WikiLeaks case, who was pardoned by President Trump, and Jeffrey Epstein. So according to this piece, days before Epstein's death in prison last year, Schoen met with him, I guess, in prison. Uh, Epstein, as you recall, accused of sexually abusing dozens of girls, um, there is now an ongoing criminal proceeding against his former, what would you call her? I guess they, it was his uh, girlfriend for a while, and then she just became a kind of a business partner, and Ghislaine Maxwell is accused of, you know, rounding up girls for the Epstein. I mean, it's also disgusting. In any event, Schoen has publicly disputed official reports that Epstein killed himself inside a Manhattan jail. He maintains his belief that Epstein may have been murdered. Schoen denies subscribing to some of the implausible claims that were circulated online and conceded there were no compelling suspects or alternate theories. Quote, uh, Schoen told the Washington Post, quote, he just didn't strike me as a guy who would commit suicide, but who knows, it's always possible. I don't think they had a medical basis for the cause of death, but they also don't have a killer. So these two lawyers are now taking on the job representing President Trump. Now, whatever their own backgrounds and whatever controversies they've been involved with, I mean, they're going to win the case because 
Donald Trump, I said this on the air yesterday. Somebody digged me for the headline on the screen and said, Trump impeachment doomed. That was not me saying that Donald Trump shouldn't be impeached. That was not me saying that Donald Trump shouldn't be convicted. That was not me saying there's nothing to these impeachment charges about inciting a riot, a riot to claim the lives of five people at the Capitol, our citadel of democracy, on January 6th. That was me saying that 45 out of 50 Republicans in a test vote last week said, this is unconstitutional, we shouldn't even have this trial, we should throw it out. Well, they don't have enough votes to throw it out, but if most of those 45 vote the same way after this trial, you're not even going to come close to the 67 senators you need to convict. Remember, the Democrats only have 50. It's a 50-50 split with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. Um, And so you'd need 17 Republican senators. You're going to get five or six at the most. So that's why it's going nowhere. That's why these guys are going to win regardless. Now, as to the lawyers who are suddenly no longer Trump's lawyers, they had planned to center their strategy, and this makes sense, on the question of whether the proceedings were constitutional because he's no longer in office. And the definition of incitement, what does it mean if you give a fiery speech to a crowd? Does that mean you're responsible for the violence that takes place later uh, by some of them? That's a fair question to be debated. But according to one of the people who spoke on the condition of anonymity, said Trump told them he wanted to use the impeachment trial to litigate voter fraud allegations and the 2020 race. In other words, still arguing that the election was stolen. He doesn't have to prove the election was stolen in order to win acquittal. That's not what this is about. He has to prove either that it's unconstitutional to go after a foreign president and no longer holds office, or that he didn't incite anything. He just, you know, used strong rhetoric and it's not his fault that the people were trampling, killing a police officer, uh, and all the other carnage and ransacking and just absolutely uh, disgusting and despicable behavior that took place in the United States Capitol um, a little more than three weeks ago. Also, he wanted them to go out on TV and defend him. And Bowers, Butch Bowers, one of the lawyers who was let go, told Trump, according to this piece, he couldn't mount the defense that Trump wanted. So he's out. These guys are in. We'll see what happens, but I just want to reiterate, there isn't really any great drama about the outcome of this trial. Will it move public opinion? Will more stuff come out? I, don't, I think the Democrats want to do this quickly, which would probably mean no calling of witnesses. I think what they want to do is make an emotional pitch about how awful, uh, you know, show all the videos, about just the absolute awfulness of that insurrection, so that when these Republicans vote to acquit, they are tarred with it. I think that's the Democratic strategy as opposed to winning. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, story number three. Uh, we have a new Secretary of State. His name is Tony Blinken. He's very well qualified for the job, having served, uh, served as a Deputy Secretary of State in the Obama administration. Seems like a nice guy. Here's a piece in political. Listen to this headline. Everybody loves Tony. New Secretary of State gets high marks for now. So the reason I'm talking about this piece is not that I even disagree with anything in it, but I, what I'm saying is the treatment of many of the Biden cabinet members compared to the treatment of the Trump cabinet members or even the Bush cabinet members, is so different. And I understand when somebody new is coming in, they haven't screwed up yet, you know, you tend to want to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think there, there's that. There's also what are called beat sweeteners in journalism. You want to write a nice piece about the new guy or gal so that they'll talk to you, so that you'll have access, and so when things get rough, you can develop sources and all of that. 
But this is just such a positive piece that it just strikes me that, let's just say, Democratic cabinet members are much more likely, regardless of the merits of Blinken or not, to get this kind of piece. So it starts off the day before Antony Blinken was officially confirmed at Foggy Bottom. At least one U.S. embassy had already gone ahead and hung up his portrait. It was probably just a mistake, but it shows how eagerly many in the State Department were awaiting their new leader. After years of feeling marginalized and demeaned under former President DJT. Okay. Whether requesting briefings from junior staffers or promising diplomats that I will have your back, Blinken has already taken steps to signal his confidence in the foreign and civil service officers who now report to him. The moves have left a good impression. According to 10 U.S. diplomats and other officials, many of whom hope things will calm down. And the piece says, this is the to-be-sure paragraph, uh, it could be a short honeymoon for Blinken. Already questions are circulating about whether he'll promote enough career government employees or rely largely on political appointees. Also says, look, when Rex Tillerson came in, when Mike Pompeo came in, they had plenty of goodwill from the career ranks, but then they became unpopular. Blinken, a longtime Biden confidant, will be critical to implementing uh, policy, uh, foreign policy, that is. Blinken also took questions from the media last Wednesday. And the department confirmed the daily press briefings will resume this week. That vanished under Trump. I love this paragraph. The news that the briefing will return, quote, felt really good, one State Department staff member said on condition of anonymity because of a lack of permission to speak on the topic. So you can't even say it's a good thing the briefings are back and you got to go on background. Uh, Nevertheless, I wish Blinken well. If he succeeds at carrying out Biden's foreign policy, the country does well. Now, you may not agree with the Biden foreign policy. That's why we have elections. Obviously, Biden is placing a much greater emphasis on uh, NATO allies and other U.S. allies. Uh, had a, what was described, at least, as a kind of a tougher phone call with Vladimir Putin than President Trump ever had. But he's got to deal with China. I mean, he's going to have a lot of challenges on his hands around the globe just because he's a Democrat, just because his name isn't Trump doesn't mean that he's going to have a successful foreign policy. There's a coup now in Myanmar, which looks like the, you know Blinken is already denouncing, but what can the U.S. do about that? Um, and Blinken's going to be the guy. So time will tell. Another journalistic cliche. But I just love, it's just like, everybody loves Blinken for now. Okay, story number four. The coronavirus package. President Biden expected to meet today with 10 Republican lawmakers who've released a counter-proposal. And, you know, Biden is going to take the meeting because he talked about unity and bipartisanship and working across the aisles. But, as you'll recall, the Biden COVID relief proposal is $1.9 trillion. The GOP counter-suggestion is $600 billion. Originally it said $160, but I guess some other things have been fleshed out. So it's less than a third of what President Biden wants. Uh, And that... I think, um, is going to put more pressure on Biden, who says he wants to go big on this, to basically said, you know, I'll talk to the Republicans, but they wouldn't really, weren't even willing to meet us halfway. Therefore, I'm using reconciliation, one of those arcane Washington words, to pass this through the Senate, because obviously it passes the House, with 51 votes. In other words, all Democratic senators voting for it, uh, rather than trying to compromise and ending up with so much less and trying to get some token number of Republican votes. So what's in the new package? Well, Biden's plan would send $1,400 payments to checks to people up to $75,000 a year. Couples make it up to $150 to bring it up to $2,000. Because remember, under Trump, they got $600. Bucks. 
Uh, Rob Portman says the GOP plan would lower the threshold to 50000 for individuals, 100 k for couples, and they'd get $1,000 checks instead of 1400 Well, you know what? That actually seems a reasonable compromise. They're not that far apart, targeted to the lower incomes, and in, in the total, I guess, adding the old money would be, let me do the math here, uh, it would be $1,600 total checks as opposed to $2,000. Okay. The Republicans would reduce Biden's proposal for extending emergency federal unemployment benefits, which are $300 a week and can expire mid-March. Biden wants to kick it up to $400 a week. $400 a week. The GOP would keep it at $300 a week and extend them through June, not September. Again, not that far off the kind of thing we can talk about. But the Republicans don't include anything in Biden's proposal like boosting the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. I never thought that should be in there. There may be a case on the merits, but it's a Democratic wish list thing that probably, if they're ever going to get a bipartisan bill, they're going to have to kick out. Also, the GOP would match Biden's call to devote $160 billion to vaccines, testing, and related health care spending. Well, they should be able to agree on that. That's a good thing. But a big uh, area of disagreement is Biden wants to give a lot of money to states and cities. And this creates the whole red state, blue state thing. Uh, because, you know, if they have to lay off a lot of workers, uh, that hurts their economies at a time when they're trying to boost the economy. And to give you an idea of how this is going over on the Hill, Chuck Schumer, majority leader, told New York's Daily News, they should negotiate with us, not make a take-it-or-leave-it offer. Uh, if the reports are true, it doesn't have state and local money in it, says Schumer. Look at that as just one thing. So, the problem for the Democrats is this. Not every single Democrat may go along with the Biden plan. So Biden may have to negotiate with his own party. And the person, probably the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, is Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And he's ticked off because Kamala Harris made the media rounds in his state to kind of put pressure on him. She did the same thing in Arizona to support the package. And Manchin says, hey, nobody's even called me about this. And she's basically doing media to pressure me. I don't like that. And of course, no politician would like that. So that was a misstep by the Biden administration. We'll see where this goes. If I had to bet money and I don't like to gamble, especially on politics, I'd say the Dems end up going the reconciliation route and do it without the Republicans. Story number five, speaking of COVID. Pretty tough piece on Andrew Cuomo in the New York Times. It's a news story that talks about how nine uh, senior health officials in New York State have resigned in recent months basically over Cuomo and his policies. And this includes the Deputy Commissioner for Public Health, uh, the Director of the Bureau of Communicable Diseases, um, the state epidemiologists, whole bunch of people. So why are they ticked off? Why are they leaving? Well, uh, Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, according to this piece, has all but declared war on his own public health bureaucracy. Now, he's under fire now about the miscounting of nursing home deaths. I think that's a very legitimate issue. And New York is struggling, like many states, to roll out the vaccine. Some of these critics are blaming Cuomo because he took it over at the state level rather than allowing uh, localities, cities and counties, to, put, to carry out a plan that had been in place for years. So what does Cuomo say about this? He had a news conference on Friday. He says, when I say experts in air quotes, it sounds like I'm saying I don't really trust the experts because I don't, because I don't. So Cuomo is saying to the people of New York State, you got to believe in me. I know what I'm doing. This is my third term. I'm the governor. I know how to work this. 
And the state had to take this over because the counties and the cities were just not equipped to deal with something of this magnitude. That's his argument. One of the things he says is, you know, the uh, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines need special refrigeration. A lot of the localities can't handle this. But the result is what critics are calling a lot of red tape. Uh, so one of Cuomo's health aides, Dr. Zucker, says, well, look, the reason people are quitting is the state is, a, is facing an intense period of extraordinary stress and pressure, a different job than some signed on to. But one former health official telling the Times, morale certainly was and continues to be at an all-time low. Now, Cuomo not exactly being conciliatory here, and this is some of the things, you know, he can be, I mean, the good part of Andrew Cuomo is he's a tough guy who gets stuff done. The bad part of Andrew Cuomo is he's a tough guy who pisses off a lot of people, and you can argue that either way, depending on whether you're a fan or not. Cuomo to the New York Times. It's the Mike Tyson line. Everybody has a plan until I punch them in the face. <laughs> the boxer famously said that about generically about boxing. So Cuomo not exactly backing down. If you don't like Cuomo, you're hearing this until I punch them in the face. You're saying, this guy's arrogant. Why doesn't he tone it down? We're in the middle of a life-threatening uh, pandemic. He hasn't done that well getting these vaccines out. By the way, n- neither have most of the states, certainly not in the Washington area and a lot of the other states that I've been reading about. So asked about the criticism, Cuomo says, if Times reporters think I push hospitals too hard and local governments too hard, I say I'm a fighter for the people of New York and I believe I'm saving lives. A lot of this had to do with Cuomo setting up only the big hospitals to be in charge of the vaccinations and kind of bypassing the smaller hospitals and smaller uh, local health departments. And look, at this distance, I don't know whether he's right or not, but certainly he's not backing down. Uh, But it's a very different media environment now than Cuomo won an Emmy, remember, uh, for his briefings. He won a television Emmy Award for the daily briefings he held back in the early part of the pandemic when he did get a lot of credit for bringing down um, the rate in New York City. Obviously, it surged back up as it surged back, has surged back up everywhere during this winter pandemic. The only good news nationally now is that it seems to have peaked. The number of new cases has certainly come down. The death toll on some days, it's really still up there. Other days, I'm talking here about the difference between 4,000 American deaths a day and maybe, you know, 1,500, 1,700 or something under 2,000. It's still a travesty. It's still a tragedy, but we hope it's going in the right direction. And look, it's tough to be a governor in these times. Uh, That's not to let Andrew Cuomo off the hook. But every governor is struggling and they're all getting criticized because people want to know, why can't I get an appointment to get the vaccine? How much of that is Washington's fault? How much of that is the fault of the people where you live? Well, thanks for listening. Uh, Just a little reminder, you can, you know, go to Apple iTunes or Google Podcasts or Amazon Music or Spotify or on your Amazon device to get us every day delivered to your inbox, whatever kind of phone you have. And we'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.